electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, the Fed speaks, and it might raise rates ahead of schedule. Not this year, not next year, not until 2023. 2023. 2023. And tapering the billions of bond purchases every month? They're talking about it, Fed Chair Jay Powell. It's the talking about talking about meeting, if, if you like. And, and I now suggest that we retire that term, which is which has served its purpose well, I think. Dick Sporting Goods, a conversation with CEO Lauren Hobart, how COVID-19 changed her business. We closed all of our 800 plus stores, um, which immediately put us into a situation where we had hundreds of millions of dollars trapped in inventory in the stores. And how she pivoted to match a new reality. It worked and people started to adopt it and it really changed the trajectory of, of our business. Plus, from nonprofits to public office, the Robin Hood Charity's former CEO is aiming to take on inequality as a candidate for governor in Maryland. Wes Moore. What we saw with COVID-19 is that we saw not just a, an exposure, but an expansion of this really nefarious wealth gap that continues to persist within our society. It's Thursday, June 17th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Mike Santoli. Joe is off this week. All right, let's First up out. today on the podcast, it's here. The timeline when the Federal Reserve might raise interest rates. 2023 is not soon, but it is moved ahead of schedule from last projections by about a year. The official language was pull forward. The idea is that this allows enough room for the economy to be on sure footing after the COVID-19 pandemic and the March 2020 emergency drop to near zero interest rates and the start of the Fed's monthly bond buying purchases. But the Fed also raised expectations for inflation. Consumer prices have seen their biggest rise in 13 years. Here's Chair Jay Powell at the highly anticipated press conference that wrapped up the two-day meeting of the Fed's key policymaking committee. This is uh, an extraordinarily unusual time, and we, we really don't have a template or, or uh, a, a, you know, uh, any experience of, of a situation like this. And so I think we have to be humble about our ability to understand the data. It's not a time to try to reach hard conclusions about the labor market, about inflation, about the path of policy. We need to see more data. We need to be a little bit patient. The Fed's statement cited vaccinations progress in reducing the spread of COVID. With that, things should be looking up for the economy and the employment picture in general. But another thing inside the statement, and this is really for the nerds, the so-called dot plot, a chart that showed expectations for rate hikes from individual members on the Fed Open Market Committee. And it may show a greater appetite for raising rates than the statements about patience and humility. According to the chart, seven Fed officials see one or more rate increases next year, 2022. As you can imagine, Jay Powell was asked all about it. The dots are not a great forecaster of, of future rate moves, and that's not because 
It's just because it's so highly uncertain. There is no great forecaster of of uh, future dots. So so dots to be taken with it with a big uh, big grain of salt. For more on Fed vocabulary, turns of phrase. Let's get back to Becky. Mike, can we please stop saying two things that I'm so sick of? First of all, transitory, and second of all, talking about talking about. Yeah. Uh, uh, seconded on both those uh, both those counts. Uh, I do think that uh, you know, transitory, you know, we, by definition, it's either going to be or not going to be. So hopefully we can quit talking about it pretty soon. The S&P 500 did get a little bit of a jolt yesterday, though, that incremental move uh, toward potentially a nearer uh, moment of liftoff for interest rates did kind of send the market down one percent briefly yesterday. The key, though, here is how the market has flattened out, just hovering near the highs, the S&P 500, really since mid-April. The Nasdaq has a little bit of a different look to it here because it was not really clicking toward highs consistently. Theoretically, the Nasdaq should be disadvantaged with higher rates, but we don't really know if that's going to play through. Take a look at the five-year note yield, the Treasury note yield. This is the part of the Treasury maturity curve that really did have a dramatic reaction yesterday. So it shows you that we're pricing in potentially a couple more rate hikes within that five-year span, somewhere between the sort of one uh, to five-year span. And that shows you it's up more than the 10-year was. So that that was the most of the adjustment that the bond market had. It wasn't really about inflation fears. Actually, market implied inflation expectations went down after the Fed news. It shows you uh, that basically we've had to sort of readjust the outlook for inflation and the Fed's potential response to it. Becky. Hey, Mike, it hasn't even been 24 hours, but I, I think it's starting to occur to me that we're already going to start playing the game of, OK, so they moved it up to 2023. When do they move it up even sooner? You know, this yeah. just seems like it's the beginning of a movement, uh, certainly not something that we've seen the end of. I don't think the Fed is willingly going to get on that train to say that it's just inexorably going to go that way because what, what was pulled forward was the kind of committee's you know, uh, straw poll as to when each person thinks their first rate hike will be. It's not binding. Not even all those committee folks are, are voting members. So I predict what's going to happen is Fed officials, the Fed governors are going to get out there and start to reemphasize they're in no hurry, start to reemphasize it's a long process. Taper has to be done before we raise rates. And so maybe they're going to try to take some of that back uh, over the coming days and weeks. So uh, at some point we get into that mode where good economic news is maybe not going to be welcome uh, by the the markets, but I don't think we're quite there yet because it's still, you know, pretty long runway before we get to 2023. I agree with your idea that they're going to try and tamp down expectations and say, hey, this is going to be a very slow process. But I also bet if you look at where the dots move next time, they move a little closer up. There are more of them that are going to start predicting a, a rate hike next year. And maybe maybe the Fed's kind of upset with themselves for putting that dot plot out there because that's that's going to be counter to what they're saying. You know, that, that may be a clearer messaging sign than what they're actually saying. It's definitely a source of frustration. Uh, I think it's all going to depend on whether, in fact, inflation does continue to recede from the recent highs. That's really the thing that they're most worried about. The fact that the market saw that they pulled forward the potential for rate hikes because their inflation view changed a lot, not because their economic growth outlook changed a lot. That was why it was slightly unsettling. Yeah, giving them away once again. Elon Moy joins us with more on that front. And Elon, good morning. Lots to run through. Yeah, that's right, Becky. The forecasts are moving higher, which means that the dots are moving closer. What we're finding is that seven Fed officials now see a rate hike happening by the end of next year, 
Five are projecting one hike compared to just three officials in the last round of projections. Two believe the Fed will hike twice before it's just one loan hawk. And the majority of Fed officials now expect the central bank will have raised rates multiple times by the end of 2023. Still, Fed Chair Jay Powell tried to deflect attention from the dots and said that liftoff won't happen until well into the future. Rate increases are really not at all the focus of the committee. The focus of the committee is the current state of the economy. But in terms of our tools, it's about asset purchases. That's what we're thinking about. Now, Powell said the committee began the discussion on tapering, and if the economy continues to make progress, a timeline would be announced at a future meeting. He promised that the process would be orderly, methodical, and transparent. Meanwhile, on inflation, Powell acknowledged that there is a risk that prices will remain high. He said the pandemic has made everyone humble about forecasting, but he also said the Fed would not hesitate to use its tools to deal with a persistent increase in inflation. Back over to you guys. Elon, um, as uh, as Chair Powell often does, he he tries to assert that look, please don't you know get blinded by the dots. Um, this is this is kind of representations of of some of the members of the committee. Many of them may, may not even uh, vote in the coming meetings. But I guess the market reaction kind of tells you what the, the the kind of marginal change was in this whole picture, even if it is mostly in the dots. Yeah, I mean, I think the bottom line what the Fed would say is that uh, what the sort of move forward in the rate expectations means is that there's growing confidence that the recovery really is taking hold and that it's going a little bit faster maybe than the Fed had expected. And that's actually a good thing. Um, I think that he has a very tough job in trying to sort of thread that needle in saying we do believe the economy is getting better. The Fed will have to respond to that down the road. But right now, that is not really part of the equation, part of the discussion at the table, and they really try to differentiate between the tools the Fed can use in the short term and the near term in order to uh, respond to that increased economic activity and pointing to asset purchases as a tool to do that. And, and then there's the White House and how they're thinking about these things. I know the Treasury Secretary was testifying right about the time that all this was happening yesterday. We're monitoring inflation very carefully and do take it very seriously. No one um, wants to return to the bad high inflation days of the 70s. How's the White House kind of looking at inflation at this point? Yeah, so the standard caveat here is that obviously the Fed is independent, and so they're not trying to uh, call for a rate hike or not. But certainly the White House has to respond to whatever the Fed's decisions are. And I can tell you from uh, my conversations is that uh, there was a feeling of validation in the White House to the Fed's increased economic expectations and the increased forecast. They feel that the rise in the GDP forecast of 7 percent was a validation uh, that the COVID relief plan was uh, working and that it was supporting economic activity. Um, but there was also sort of this feeling that the labor market still has room to run. And Fed Chair Powell talked a lot about uh, his hope that the labor market could recover fully and strongly. In another year or two, we could see uh, the labor market return to what we saw pre pandemic. Um, and I think that the White House is really using that as an argument now for their infrastructure plan that you guys are talking mm -hmm. about and the sort of care economy plan that they um, are also proposing and saying, look, interest rates are going to be low for a long time. This is a time to make an investment in America. Lots happening. Elon, thank you very much. It's great to see you this morning. Microsoft uh, said CEO Satya Nadella will replace independent director John Thompson as chairman of the board. The board made the decision unanimously. Thompson will stay on as lead independent director. 
He replaced Bill Gates as Microsoft chair in 2014. That was the same day Nadella replaced Steve Ballmer as CEO. Stock is up roughly 600 percent since that day. Under Nadella's watch, Microsoft regained the title of the world's most valuable company, although today it ranks second behind Apple. Guys, don't you think that's such an interesting decision? And it's 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 to Satya's credit, but it's also unique in that from a a corporate governance perspective, uh, much of corporate America has moved away from a chairman CEO structure. The idea of having uh, an independent chairman has become sort of a feature uh, that so many companies have moved towards. In fact, once people have gotten once companies have gotten to that point where they have two. It's yeah, very rare, rare I think, where they, where they go back. Yeah. I, my guess is it, it's a statement to, to Sacha and what he's done with that company. If you look at the performance of the stock over that period of time, um, my guess would be it's a nod to that. But you're right. It, it, it's not something you often see that once the chairman and CEO roles are split to see them put back um, into the same person. It, it, it was very interesting to see what the ISSs and, and uh, other proxy firms and, and some of the big investors like, like BlackRock and others that have, had, that have really driven the, the push towards an independent director, what they think of it. Again, though, it is to Satya's credit, and as you said, Becky, it has been a remarkable run under his leadership. Eleven Republican senators supporting a bipartisan infrastructure framework. It's enough for a potential bill to get through the chamber uh, if all Democrats end up backing it. Now, in a statement, 21 Democratic and GOP senators endorsed the roughly one trillion dollar proposal, which would not raise taxes on corporations or wealthy people. It would revamp transportation, broadband and water, but would not address Democratic goals for investments in clean energy and social programs. Now, as you might imagine, some Democrats have now threatened to vote against the plan, which they say does not do enough to fight climate change or income inequality. But my friends, it's time for us to put on that classic song by Fleetwood Mac. It's time for us to go our own way. This is as clear as day. No climate, no deal. One step forward, two steps back. I'm not sure where this is going to land, Becky. Uh, Axios was doing the math earlier this week, and I think at that point they were saying you might need at least 15 Republicans to come on board with this based on the number of Democrats that you would lose because Democrats like Bernie Sanders were asking for all sorts of concessions to say, okay, we're not going to vote for this unless we get assurances from Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin and others that they will in turn vote for our additional bills down the road, which kind of defeats the purpose. If if you have to say, okay, we're going to mush this all back together, we've heard the same thing from uh, Congressman Josh Gottheimer who also kind of falls in that camp of Democrats who are not thrilled with the big plan but would like to get a bipartisan plan put together. Um, I don't think you're going to get any agreement from those individuals to say, yes, we will vote for the additional expanded packages down the road, because if you were, you might as well just mush it all together in the first place. That's going to be the math. How how many Democratic senators do they lose if they go the bipartisan route, and do they have enough Republicans to actually make up for it? Get your calculator out. Keep the tallies. (laughs) We'll see. Uh, you know, the whips are probably running this right now. Next, on Squawk Pod, the CEO of Dick's Sporting Goods, the largest sporting goods chain in the country, on what keeps her up at night over a year since the pandemic began. If I were to say we have any sort of an attack team out still really working on uh, pandemic-related issues, it would be it would be supply chain. That conversation, right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything? 
anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS. Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Today with Becky Quick, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Michael Santoli. Here's Becky. Welcome back, everybody. The pandemic forced retailers to rethink how to get consumers what they needed and how to do it safely. I spoke to the CEO of Dick's at the CNBC Evolve Global Summit yesterday about evolution. Like Charles Darwin, never imagined this. This is evolution that takes place not slowly over time, but this is evolution that takes place overnight. We closed all of our 800 plus stores, um, which immediately put us into a situation where we had hundreds of millions of dollars trapped in inventory in the stores. And while we could do ship from store, we didn't have an ability to uh, access the product for for consumers in the market. So thanks to uh, a long time investment in technology where we were able to really get our platforms ready for such a crisis that we were not anticipating, Uh, We were able to spin up this curbside uh, pickup in less than two days, but it worked and people started to adopt it and uh, it really changed the trajectory of of our business. So it was really great. But it wasn't just a short term evolution. I I do want to say it was years and years of planning for the unexpected that we did not know was coming. Talking about curbside pickup at the stores, didn't your team tell you it would take something like 18 months to get it up and running? Yes. um, Yes. I think that's the other lesson that we learned from the pandemic is when you have a burning platform, we can move mountains. And I actually I think a lot about how we want to save and and keep some of that scrappiness that we got. We we use the term scrappy a lot at Dix, but during the pandemic, it was never more obvious because that project was on our roadmap. It was on our long term roadmap to try curbside. Other retailers were having some success with it. But Um, It wasn't the first priority, and we had multiple other priorities, and it was going to be an 18-month lead time. So um, it was pretty exciting to see when everybody put everything else down and the tech team started working on this with everybody uh, all in. It really came together in, in 48 hours, which was just amazing, amazing teamwork. So Dick's Sporting Goods went from this problem of having too much inventory in their stores at the start of the pandemic to not having enough as things reopened, as people started coming back in. And that was the big problem that has been persisting, those problems in the supply chain. It's something that still keeps Lauren Hobart up at night right now. The supply chain issues, they never cease to amaze me. It just keeps coming where we think we've we've got things back in stock and under control. And then, you know, there's new issues, um, some challenges in, in Vietnam right now and a few other places. So um, that's what, you know, if I were saying we have any sort of an attack team out still really working on uh, pandemic related issues, it would be it would be supply chain. That said, 
we really managed through all of last year to drive these comps with with the inventory being constrained as it was. So we are we've developed I think a pretty good muscle at this, and so I, it keeps me up, but not for very long at night. Guys, the supply chain issues is something we hear again and again. Mary Barrow was on CNBC yesterday talking about some of the problems they're dealing with on this very same front. And when you ask uh, Lauren Hobart what she really did to kind of work on these things, what her team is continuing to do today, they're doing all kinds of crazy things where they've released the strict guidelines they used to have. They used to say, if you want to send us your inventory, you have to make sure it's on a hanger, it's wrapped, it has X, Y, and Z. Right. Now they basically say, just dump it in a box. We'll come get it from you. We're not going to require you to drop it off at different distribution centers will take it all in one place and will select it from there. So they have incredibly relaxed standards of what they used to ask for, what they used to say. They'll even pay for things like uh, air shipments if they think that it makes sense financially to do some of these things. And, and, and that's the huge chain that we've seen. Um, yesterday, Mary Barra was talking about how they're doing the very same thing with chips and they've been able to be much more profitable and produce more cars and trucks than they thought they'd be able to because their teams are working on just these issues. But that, that's a big issue that's not going away this year. And it's right. the thing that teams everywhere are still working on. It's going to be very interesting to see how that trickles into margin, because it's, it's important, obviously, mm -hmm. on the volume side of things. But you have to get the volume to make it up on the margin, because if you're going to start, you know, shipping stuff by air or the additional costs of sorting through things. And does that is, is that a permanent change or is that something uh, that, that is transitory, as Jay Powell would like to say? Yeah, it's also the good problem to have right now. I know people were using as their benchmark for pandemic supply chain issues, like how long it took you to get a piece of gym equipment delivered, like even right. dumbbells. I mean, it's ridiculous how long those are on back order. I do wonder, though, if, uh, you know, there's still an open question as to whether there was a big pull forward in terms of people buying sporting goods, not really clothing, but just other stuff that maybe they don't need every year. It's, you know, maybe that's like maybe a, next year. A new year's kayak, business. a new canoe, yeah, exactly. a, a new bike. Yeah, they're, they're definitely camping equipment, things I, like that. For bikes you can't get bikes walmart's no. been out of bikes for over a year if you go to bike supply shops they'll tell you they're not even sure how long it's on back order and by the way the bikes they do have are like 750 bucks so there are, are some things that are on huge back order for this and you're right you wonder if that demand will still be there um she did think that it's changed people's way of lives like maybe we are living a healthier more outdoors uh, lifestyle there's probably some truth to that because i think all of us have, have um, maybe kind of embraced nature in ways that we we, we took it for granted before. This really interesting thing happened where the the world started to want to get active and outdoors. And so we first saw it in the golf business. The golf business started taking off and has not slowed down since. It just, you know, the first activity you could really do outside, which was great. So our business started to respond to that we've been chasing um, inventory all year as everybody has. It's been a challenging year to keep to keep in stock, but we've gotten really good at managing and, and trying to chase things and trying to provide people with what they need. Anyway, I bought you, a bike during the pandemic, so. I bought a bunch. Not just, for, I mean, not not a bunch of bikes for me, but bikes all the way around for everybody in the family so that everybody has a way to get back out there because I realized it had been a long time. Bikes have gotten much better than they used to be, and if you can find a lighter one, it makes a big difference. So, yeah, and by the way, the kids keep growing too. If you'd like to hear more of Becky's conversation with Dick's CEO, Lauren Hobart, head to cnbcevents.com slash evolve and follow CNBC's The Keynote Podcast, which has so many great conversations from our events. 
Coming up on Squawk Pod, the former CEO of New York's Robin Hood anti-poverty charity is taking on a new campaign, running for governor of Maryland. Good deeds alone uh, will not be enough to lead us out of darkness. We have to lead a concerted and a concentrated conversation and a broad conversation with every sector of our economy to be able to provide economic opportunities for everybody. Becky Quick speaks to Wes Moore when we come back. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. As vaccination rates across the country rise, communities are left with COVID's legacy of worsening health and financial inequality. Joining us right now is a man that is familiar with supporting disadvantaged communities. Wes Moore, he's the former CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, and he's currently running for governor of Maryland. And, and Wes, it's good to see you. Um, I guess Great we now know you. why you stepped down, because you are, are planning on trying to do uh, from the public sector what you've been doing in the private sector for so long. Uh, talk about why you are running for governor right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm running for, for governor because if you look at uh, my home state, the state of Maryland, uh, we are a state that is one of the wealthiest states in the country, but also one of the most inequitable. You know, we're a state with, uh, with some of the best, best schools in the United States and some of the most underfunded, some of the best medical institutions where people literally travel from around the world to get treatments in the state of Maryland. And we also have people who cannot afford to get treated in them. Uh, you know, and we can do better. When we think about the type of place we find ourselves in, for us to have a really unified and a broad conversation about economic opportunity, about work and wages and wealth, and how do we create that for all Marylanders, I feel like we have a unique moment and a, and a unique place where we can lead in that conversation and, and make it a space where opportunity does not have to be miserly or arbitrary, but opportunity can be something that all people have a chance to advance into. Wes, why do you think that you can be more effective in a public role doing that than, than in the private role, doing that through philanthropy to this point? Yeah. Well, I, I think I've had, the, I've had the pleasure of leading in, in a multitude of different sectors of the American economy. You know, I, I've been a, a paratrooper uh, where I've led soldiers in combat with the 82nd Airborne. I have been a, a, a successful business owner who had a successful exit from a, from a business that I started in Baltimore that was uh, effectively helping students, first generation, first and family students make it to and through college. Uh, and then also as, one, as the CEO of one of the largest nonprofit organizations in this country, uh, Robin Hood, and, and focusing exclusively on economic mobility and fighting poverty. And so I think one of the things that we can do and we understand is, A, I'm able to see it from a variety of different spheres. I'm able to build bridges uh, and to be able to bring people together on a collective mission, on a collective goal. And I understand that, that unless we can focus on that, unless we can bring all these various sectors together, then we will repeatedly find ourselves just simply cleaning up the debris that's coming from broken systems. And, and good deeds alone uh, will not be enough to lead us out of darkness. We have to lead a concerted and a concentrated conversation and a broad conversation with every sector of our economy to be able to provide economic opportunities for everybody. Let, let's talk about the inequality problem because it's definitely something that has um, 
gotten worse over the last several years, uh, especially with the pandemic. But this is a problem that you can kind of tie back to the financial crisis, too. And, and there are lots of people who will point to this and say, this is a problem with the actions of the Federal Reserve. Uh, they took these extraordinary actions, brought interest rates down to incredibly low levels, and, and their point was a good one. They were trying to make sure that they could rescue the economy and, and, and save all boats and make them afloat. <laughs> but the problem is the wealthiest people actually benefited the most from, from many of those activities and continue to do so to this day. What, what, what do you think about that? Well, how would you go about attacking that when the Fed is doing things to try and keep the system afloat that probably have incredibly exacerbated the inequality problem. And, and, and I think the, you know, one of the real damages is we're actually starting to see some progress on measures of wealth inequality that we had not seen in a long time. Uh, we actually have started to see where the wealth gap was actually beginning to show signs of, of, of a measure of decrease, and that's no longer the case. You know, what we saw with COVID-19 is that we saw not just a, an, an, an exposure, but an expansion of this really nefarious wealth gap that continues to persist within our society. And the challenge is when we're talking about things like growing inflation and growing infl inflationary numbers, and we've been talking about the potential of, of, uh, of in inflationary pressure uh, increasing over the past decade plus since we have had a run up on the markets. Uh, and now that we're watching these pressures, the reality is who it's going to hit hardest as we're watching the price of basic goods increase is those who are low income. We still have a situation right now, Becky, where, uh, where there's not a single congressional district in this country where a person can make minimum wage and afford a two-bedroom apartment. Not one. And so when we're thinking about what the impact has been, particularly on low-wage workers, particularly on those who are the working poor, the ones who are working and still not making enough, to get them above the poverty line, we see how unless we are having real conversations about work and work training and job reskilling and matching people for the jobs that are available, unless we're having real conversations about wages and making sure that people are getting paid a fair amount for a fair day's work, and unless well, that's translating into creating measures of generational wealth, we see how, the, how inflationary pressures will continue to create these massive economic and that massive wealth divides that are going to have significant societal impacts on us going forward. So a, a big part of your, your party's platform at this point, a big part of the movement in your party is to try and address the tax system to make things fairer. Um, we've heard this time and again, there's all kinds of different taxes that are out there, whether that be a wealth tax that's been talked about by Elizabeth Warren and others, whether that be a financial transaction tax. Um, and I, I wonder where you come down on these things, because in the past you've worked with the billionaires, you've worked, gone through philanthropy, uh, you've seen the power through Robin Hood of how some of these traders and investors give back pretty actively. What, what do you think about raising taxes on that class of people? I, I think one of the things I've been really inspired by is when you think about the work that we've been able to do, whether it was through Bridget EU or whether it's through the military or, or whether it's through Robin Hood, I, I, I think about the, the army that we had within the Robin Hood Foundation and it was investment managers and it was school teachers. Uh, you know, it was, it was management consultants and it was social workers. Uh, it was a broad and a, and, a, and a varied group of people who were all focused on solving the fundamental challenge and the fundamental issue of a lack of economic growth and a lack of economic opportunity for everybody. And I think that's how we actually need to approach these problems going forward, right? We first need to think about what is the goal? What is it that we're trying to accomplish? What is the ends that we're trying to then get done? And then how do we think about the resources that are going to be necessary 
in order to help us to actually accomplish those things. We have to have a system where people and corporations, et cetera, uh, you know, are, are, are able to put together a fair, a fair tax plan, a fair tax policy that's able to cover down on all the other elements that we need to be able to accomplish, to be able to create the economic pathways, to create lifelong, the lifelong learning and lifelong success for the individuals in our communities. And we have to understand that it's, it's, it, is, it, is our, it is our job creators. It is the people who are in, in treating, treating our people to be not just employees, but employers. And that needs to be sustained and that needs to be built out uh, from, a, from a fair tax policy standpoint as well. And so I think it's about how do we bring all these various sectors together to be able to come up with a fair tax policy and a fair tax structure that's able to accomplish our larger natural goal, which is creating work and wages and wealth for individuals within our society. But should I take that as a yes to higher taxes for, for the wealthier people? You're just not sure which taxes you, you agree with yet? Well, yeah, I, I, I think that, that nothing, nothing should be taken off of a table about how we think about our measures, of, our measures of tax policy. I also think, though, it's really important to remember that we as, as individual jurisdictions uh, now have a new flood of capital that we have to be really thoughtful and diligent about. I think about in the state of Maryland. The state of Maryland, through the ARP, is now receiving $3.9 billion from the federal government. $3.9 billion of discretionary capital. By the way, that's not capital that's going towards infrastructure. That's going to be a separate pot of capital. That's not capital that's going towards education. That's a separate pot of capital. $3.9 billion of discretionary capital that is now coming into the state of Maryland alone to be able to think about how do we invest and turn that 3.9, not into 3.9, but turn that 3.9 into 9.4. Right. And so the first conversation that needs to be had is, as we're thinking about the fact that you have municipalities whose balance sheets have changed, they have changed because of ARP, they have changed because of what's happened in the partnership with the federal government that we are now seeing and experiencing with the Biden administration, the first thing that we've got to do is not necessarily go into the, you know, the old frameworks of, about how do we think about a policy from 2016, but it is how we think about this new flood of capital that can really that can really be the engine behind our larger economic growth that everybody can benefit from. Wes, good to see you this morning. Uh, I want to thank you for it's your great time, to see you, and, and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you. And that's Squawk Pod for today. On our rundown tomorrow, Juneteenth, commemorating the day enslaved African Americans in Texas were informed of their freedom two and a half years after emancipation. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears. Listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. You guys are clear. Thank you very much. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.